I don't remember how long it actually took for the results to get there. Uh, I just remember that I was at home at night uh, when I got the email. So I was sitting uh, with my son trying to get him down to sleep for the night and I had just gotten him to sleep and suddenly my phone went off. And I looked at it and I was like scrambling to try to dismiss it because it was illuminating the room and I didn't want to ruin all the hard work I had done. And so I looked at my phone, I saw the the notification that had come up and it had said, your initial results are ready. And I like kind of paused for a minute, noticing that this was from 23andMe and that I had an email with which would give me access to a whole bunch of genetic information that I wasn't sure if I was ready to open or not. That's the voice of Michael Grant. Mike is describing the moment he received his test results from the direct-to-consumer genetics testing company 23andMe. Mike, in addition to being a dutiful dad, is my colleague at CSMLS and co-producer of this podcast. The reason he's sitting in a Thomas the Train bed, slightly stressing over opening that email, is partly my fault. A couple years back, we both became fascinated by the rise of these direct-to-consumer genetics tests. And we weren't the only ones. According to the Canadian Medical Association, as of 2016, there were 246 companies offering some form of DNA test online. 246! Many of those were starting to penetrate the Canadian market. The interesting thing to us was that this wasn't happening in isolation. I'll let Mike explain. Three things happened within a really short period of time, or at least seemed to be all happening around the same time. So the first was, or one of the items, was that Life Labs had launched its patient portal in the province of Ontario. So uh, we saw that had come out. They put out a news release. We put it on social media, and that kind of created a little bit of buzz. So we were aware that there was some interest around that. The second item was that 23andMe had relaunched its product offering uh, in North America. So in 2013, uh, the FDA, FDA had sent them a warning letter, so they had to kind of pull back some of their pseudo-medical testing uh, and retool it. And so in 2015, this stuff came back on the market. Around the exact same time, the state of Arizona passed a law that was going to give patients the opportunity to order lab tests without having to go through their doctor. So they can just do these things on their own. So in isolation, the three things, you know, we could have looked at and just been like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But because they were all happening around the same time, it really started to feel like we were, we were at this moment in time where we were almost at this precipice of maybe a fairly significant change in healthcare and really a shift in power away from the traditional structures and hierarchy of healthcare, doctors, and putting a lot more control in the hands of patients. Viva la revolution, right? Well, not so fast. As we started discussing these issues around the office, it brought up all kinds of concerns. Things like the risk of pre-analytical errors from patients providing their own samples to data security and privacy. But what it really boiled down to was access to information and the question of how much is too much. 23andMe was interesting uh, to us because we thought direct-to-consumer genetic testing was one of those areas that jumped off the page as like, "Mm, maybe this is too much information. Maybe patients shouldn't have access to the wealth of data that can come with running this very large panel of genetic tests. So we were questioning whether patients should be able to do this or not, or when patients did do it, were they prepared for the information they were going to get? And so we wanted to test that out. 
So an experiment was conceived. And I'll admit I was totally part of concocting this experiment. So we looked at the staff and we're like, okay, let's pick someone who's not an MLT, so not a lab professional, and just a relatively lay person and have them run the test and then see if they were, A, prepared to open the results, and B, what do they do afterwards? And this is about the time I chickened out. You see, it really came down to either Mike or I taking the test. And while I was really interested in the outcome of the experiment, I really wasn't up for being the guinea pig. I'd prefer to leave Pandora's box nicely sealed. So I was pretty quick on the draw in calling not it. And that ultimately left Mike sitting in that Thomas the Train bed with a decision to make. One that proved a little harder than he thought. I'm Kathy Bowers, and you're listening to The Objective Lens. We're going to spend most of this episode looking at direct-to-consumer genetics testing. But I do want to quickly cycle back to the two other events Mike mentioned. One was the launch of the Life Labs patient portal in the province of Ontario. When we posted that story to the CSMLS Facebook page, we were surprised by the amount of comments it generated. Many praised the initiative as empowering patients. Others were concerned about patients trying to interpret their own results. The debate was lively. It turns out that while this appeared to be an innovation locally, patient portals weren't a new concept. And there was an existing body of research that looked at their effect. A literature review published in the Journal of Medical Internet Research entitled The Effect of Patient Portals on Quality Outcomes and Its Implications to Meaningful Use, a Systematic Review, analyzed 27 published studies on the subject. The results were mostly positive. In general, patient portals appeared to lead to improvements in medication adherence, disease awareness, improved self-care, and medical appointment attendance. The real drawback was that several studies pointed to health literacy and numeracy skills as barriers to patients being able to take advantage of the benefits of a portal. So maybe this guy wasn't exactly falling in this case. However, the situation south of the border was a little more alarming. The great state of Arizona passed a law allowing consumers to order and pay for their own lab test without a requisition from their doctor. That law was co-authored by Elizabeth Holmes, founder and CEO of Theranos. For anyone listening who isn't familiar with Theranos, it was initially known as a breakthrough technology company, purporting to have developed the ability to run a series of diagnostic laboratory tests with a very small amount of capillary blood. Essentially, this would pave the way for patients to collect their own blood through a finger prick and be able to order their own lab tests. Of course, we now know that Theranos' claims were false. The technology never worked. And this would eventually lead to bankruptcy for the company and fraud charges for Ms. Holmes. There is a fascinating documentary by HBO on the rise and fall of Theranos. I highly recommend watching it. So while the science was flawed, the vision behind it, well, that was actually pretty compelling. Just listen to this clip of Holmes delivering a TED Med talk. We see a world in which every person has access to actionable health information at the time it matters. A world in which no one ever has to say, if only I'd known sooner. A world in which no one ever has to say goodbye too soon. 
I'm not the only one who found it compelling. Holmes was able to raise over $700 million from venture capitalists and private investors, resulting in a $10 billion valuation at its peak. So while Theranos is dead, perhaps the idea of empowering patients and engaging them more in their own healthcare management, that's an idea that is alive and well, and we're probably going to see it again. Okay, let's get back to Mike and his dilemma. It's funny. So when in the lead up to receiving the results, there was a lot of conversation at the office around what was going to happen and whether I was going to want to open the results or not. And everybody had an opinion. And a lot of people were very doom and gloom about this. And we're like, you shouldn't open the results. This is going to have all these implications. You're not going to be able to unsee what you see. This is going to mess with your insurance rates. Uh, So everyone had kind of started to fill my head with these uh, horrible scenarios. So when I received the results, I wasn't really sure whether I wanted to open it. Like it was enough to give me pause. The point of the experiment was to basically chronicle my experience with 23andMe from the point of view of a patient. And so I was going to record all of this in an article that was going to be published in the CSMLS journal. And so we had planned for this. I had this deadline. So I had to make a decision as to whether I was going to open it or not fairly quickly. And to be honest, in the moment after talking to everyone, I wasn't really sure what I should do. So I thought... I should probably get a little bit more informed before I do. And so I reached out to the Canadian Association of Genetics Counselors and asked to interview a genetics counselor on the topic to help me uh, in my decision making. So I did. When in doubt, phone a friend. Or in this case, a qualified genetics professional. Who knew Mike was so connected? Yeah, it's great. If you ever have a your own journal at your disposal, you can just call people and get all sorts of things. Yeah. Perk of the job. It seemed like a wise move. And so for creating this podcast, I stole Mike's idea and I too spoke with a genetics counselor. Um, So my name is Alexis Carreri. I'm currently working as a genome analyst at the London Health Sciences Centre in London, Ontario. My role there is in variant interpretation. So basically any genetic test that gets ordered through the lab in London um, comes through me at some point, and I review the results and try to interpret the results in a clinically meaningful way. I think Alexis qualifies as an expert on the subject. I've personally never required the services of a genetics counselor, so I asked Alexis to educate me on the evolution of the profession. The traditional picture of a genetic counselor was um, someone who worked alongside a physician. This was most commonly in prenatal genetics. That's really where genetic counseling got its start. So women or couples who were pregnant, um, who maybe had an abnormality identified by ultrasound or who had some kind of family history of a genetic condition, would seek out genetic testing and genetic counseling. Um, And a counselor would work with that family to make reproductive decisions based on the results of testing prenatally. Since then, the role has really expanded to other areas, really all areas of medicine. There are pediatric genetic counselors who work to diagnose children uh, with genetic conditions. There are genetic counselors working in neurology, in cardiology, um, all looking at hereditary forms of disease. So not just an individual, say, with a heart attack, but an individual who has an early onset heart attack or who comes from a family with multiple fam- multiple members um, who have had early cardiac disease. 
So typically, genetic counselors have worked alongside physicians. Um, nowadays, things have changed a little bit. More genetic counselors are working independently. Um, some genetic counselors are even in private practice doing consultation for patients kind of outside of the, the traditional medical system. There are also genetic counselors like myself working in laboratories. So on the testing side rather than the patient side, there are genetic counselors doing research. Um, there are genetic counselors working in private industry in the companies that develop genetic testing as well. As you might imagine, the rise of direct-to-consumer genetic testing, such as the service provided by 23andMe, has captured the attention of the genetics counseling community. In talking with Alexis, I think it's fair to describe the prevailing sentiment as one of caution. But that isn't to say that there isn't some value to these products. So one of the things we see in the genetics clinic um, in certain populations is a lack of genetic literacy or a lack of awareness um, of genetics. So we love to find ways to educate people about genetics so they can be more familiar with the topic and really be able to engage with it. So, you know, if you take a genetic test and it tells you something about, you know, whether you're likely to have curly hair or likely to have blue eyes, that's a great conversation starter to to think about, you know, what is genetics? How does it work? What is inheritance? What do we get from our mom? And what do we get from our dad? What do we pass on to our children? That's a pretty, those are pretty benign um, traits or topics. And I think, but people find them really interesting. So it's a great way actually to get people thinking about genetics. The more the public is aware of genetics, the more they can understand how it can impact their health management. And the more they can appreciate the role of genetic technologists and genetic counselors. Those are good things. And there is a possibility that a user of a direct-to-consumer product could identify a potential health risk and seek medical management. However, that possibility is really remote. Extremely remote, actually. Given that, I asked Alexis if she felt there was a valid medical reason for someone to take a direct-to-consumer test. From a medical perspective we would typically say no. So if you don't have a family history of early onset Alzheimer's disease, or you don't have a family history of early onset Parkinson's, or you have no real reason to think that you're at risk of these conditions, then seeking out a genetic test from a medical standpoint isn't going to have a lot of utility. Um, either you're going to be told that you aren't at risk, at which case, in which case, okay, that's pretty much where you were starting from. Or you might be told that you are at some genetic increased risk for these conditions, but really there's not a lot we can do with that information. So there's no medical care or intervention or screening that can be performed at an early age. Um, there's nothing we can do to prevent the conditions from occurring. There's the chance that the individual will just be more um, anxious about those results and worry about them. And really the risks we're talking about here are not not necessarily that great. Um, so, you know, with the with Alzheimer's disease in particular, depending on the variant that you're that you're told that you carry, it might be something like um, up to a 25% lifetime risk of Alzheimer's. However, if we just think about the general population that's getting older, people are living longer. Already, we know that about 50% of people will have Alzheimer's disease um, before they die. So it's it's not really giving you useful medical information. And I don't think that there are really any medical providers who could take that result and do something with it to change your medical care. So there are concerns about direct-to-consumer testing that I think I can safely label as worrisome. These being missing the context of a detailed family history, 
the requirement of a fair bit of interpretation and judgment when looking at the results, and the potential to create a larger number of the worried well. Now, in Mike's case, the last one is a legitimate concern. While not a hypochondriac, Mike does have a healthy number of irrational fears. Just ask him about Ebola. But the real problem with the worried well scenario is that it creates extra and needless strain on an already burdened healthcare system. While these issues are worrisome, they are just the tip of the iceberg. It's really important to understand that the tests being offered currently by most of these DTC companies are only for selected genes or even for selected mutations. So in the case of 23andMe, they're only testing for three known mutations, and these happen to be mutations that are more common in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. So particularly if you're not Ashkenazi Jewish, this test really has no meaning for you. And if you already qualify for medical grade testing for hereditary cancer, you should go seek that out from a physician. So depending on who you are and what you're looking for, these tests are simply the wrong test for you. Alexis explains further. So a really important difference, I think the main crux of the difference, is whether the test is targeted or not. So when you come into a clinic with a very specific reason for your referral, we'll we'll use breast cancer again, the clinician knows that there are a specific set of genes that they need to look for. So they're going to use a test that's targeted to those genes. By targeting to one or two or even 20 genes that are specifically related to breast cancer, we're able to use more comprehensive testing techniques. So rather than just looking at specific genetic changes that we've seen before, um, just sort of looking at a snapshot of the gene, most typically what would be done is called genetic sequencing. So we would actually read the entire gene from beginning to end, and we would compare it to a reference sequence, a sequence that we know is basically normal, and we would identify any changes anywhere in the gene that could be causing a problem. That way we can find both things that are definitely disease-causing, because we've seen them before, and even changes that have never been seen before, but that in many cases we're able to classify one way or the other. So we're able to say this is benign, it it doesn't cause disease, or it does. Or sometimes there's variants even in the middle that we can't quite classify yet, um, but we're able to build evidence and try to classify them in the future for the patient. In contrast, when we talk about DTC testing, it's it's really a totally different beast. So these are non-targeted tests. These tests are looking at a whole, a whole swath of the genome, and they're using genome chips. So this is a chip that has been designed to capture a specific list of genetic changes that have been documented before. It can't find any new changes. It can't find what it's not looking for. So it only looks for a set of anywhere from 10, 50, 100 to 500,000 genetic changes that the lab is specifically asking for. With that comes some lack of precision. So we know that there are mistakes. We know that there is a false positive rate, meaning sometimes the calls are wrong. So sometimes it says that there's a genetic change there when it isn't. This is actually a probabilistic mechanism that's used to decide um, what the genetic variant is at a specific spot. There's also false negatives. So an individual might be told, no, you don't carry any genetic changes, but we know that sometimes they do. After hearing that, you might very well question why anyone would take one of these direct-to-consumer tests over accessing tests through the traditional healthcare system. Well, a big reason is that the system is imperfect. 
you have families that seem to have a lot of heart attacks or strokes or high cholesterol or diabetes, they really look and see, you know, my grandfather died young, my uncles died young, I'm really concerned about myself. The access there is not necessarily great. There, I use that example because there's actually not a lot of clinics in Ontario in particular that focus on um, hereditary um, heart attack and stroke and high cholesterol. There's only really one or two. And sometimes getting yourself one of those referrals can be difficult because the family physician is not familiar with um, the genetic underpinnings of, say, high cholesterol or heart attack. The fact that genetic testing requires a doctor's order means that family physicians can be the gatekeeper to these services. Wait lists and gaps in access are a real thing. So it isn't unreasonable for a patient to think, well, this DTC product is better than nothing. But that's problematic. And the concern there is that an individual says, okay, well, my family physician's not really listening to me, so I'm just going to go get this test online. I'm worried about breast cancer. This says it's a breast cancer test. I'm going to go get that one. They get the test. 23andMe says to them, no, you don't carry any of the three mutations that are common in Ashkenazi Jewish individuals. And the patient takes that report and says, okay, phew, I'm in the clear. Great. The problem is that that was not the appropriate test. So they might as well have gone and had a test for genetic risk for diabetes and been in the clear. I mean, it's telling them just about as much information of their, about their risk as breast cancer, for breast cancer, sorry. So a, a direct-to-consumer test is only valuable if it's the right test for you. Um, and in many cases, the right test for people just isn't available on the market. So if you're, if you're not of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, there there is not a direct-to-consumer test that is appropriate for you to assess your cancer risk. That's exactly the scenario that played out for a New Brunswick woman in 2018. Victoria Bower is a mother of three who became concerned about her own cancer risks after her mother died of breast cancer at the age of 47. Bower began wondering if she carried harmful mutations of the so-called breast cancer genes, the BRCA1 and the BRCA2. In an interview with CBC, Bower said, quote, I need to know if I passed down, if I had this BRCA1, if I passed it down to my children and their children, and I need to protect them, and I don't want them to wait until they have cancer for them to find out and make decisions for themselves, end quote. As a mother of two girls, I get that concern. In 2003, Boer contacted the IWK Health Centre in Halifax, which has a genomics lab, to see if she could be tested. The IWK told Boer she didn't meet the criteria, which include personal and family medical histories, including blood relatives who were diagnosed with breast or ovarian cancer before the age of 50. But her concerns remained, and when she turned 47, the very age her mother died, Boer called the IWK and begged the hospital to test her. By then, she had gathered more evidence about relatives who had died from cancer at a young age. The IWK agreed to do the testing and took blood samples, telling Boer it would take eight months for the results. But something happened in those intervening months. To mark their anniversary, Boer bought a 23andMe genetic testing kit for her and her husband. According to her husband, Scott, quote, she thought it would be fun to test our genetic ancestry and find out where we came from, 
end quote. And that does sound fun, doesn't it? Conveniently, the kit also included testing for the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. And just a few weeks later, she got the results. The report read, zero variants detected. Bower cried in relief. Unfortunately, the story does not end here. Four weeks later, the IWK called. During a video call, Bower would learn she did indeed have genetic variants associated with the higher risk of breast and ovarian cancer. She was shocked. Was the 23andMe test wrong? No. The IWK looked at the mutations that 23andMe tested and found the company's results were right. They just weren't the whole picture. As Alexis pointed out earlier, proper diagnostic genetic testing is far more comprehensive than their direct-to-consumer counterparts, looking at a significantly wider array of genes and variants. As a result of Bora's test results, doctors removed her breast and ovaries, substantially reducing her 70% chance of getting cancer. I'd like to introduce you to Brittany Antoniuk, a genetic technologist at the Molecular Oncology Lab at Hamilton Health Sciences. What we do as genetic technologists in the lab is we will extract DNA or RNA from samples that we get. Um, We will either diagnose a patient with a particular type of cancer, leukemia, Um, or we will monitor their progression um, as they go through treatment. Like many other genetic technologists I've spoken with, Brittany gets a knot in her stomach when you raise the subject of direct-to-consumer genetics products. Brittany echoes many of the same concerns that Alexis has already raised. One of those concerns she's particularly concerned about are the error rates. There was a paper that came out in, I believe it was March of this year. And it was a lab that was looking at the patients that had come into their lab because they had tested positive um, from one of these direct-to-consumer companies. And they looked into these patients and they found that there was a 40% error rate in their pickup, which is really high for someone who works in a diagnostic lab because we go through so many hoops and we make sure that the tests that we're doing are at a level that we are confident in our results. So it seems concerns about the worried well needlessly accessing the healthcare system are pretty well-founded. One of the factors that might be leading to a higher error rate may be the sample collection method of these DTC tests. So spitting into tube, you will get cells because you do have um, some of your cheek cells kind of mixed in with your uh, saliva. Um, But you have enzymes in your mouth and stuff like that. So the quality of the DNA that you're getting from, say, these types of samples, probably not as um, great as, say, a blood sample. So generally when you are um, going for genetic testing, your doctor, when they order the test, will send you to a lab and you'll get blood drawn and then it'll come to us and we'll extract your DNA or your RNA, whichever we require to run a test. Um, And we will measure 
um, the DNA and the quality of the DNA that we get from your sample. And if the quality is not good enough, then we may ask for you to give us another sample so that we have really good quality DNA for the tests that we run because um, the quality of the DNA that we get does affect the results that we'll get. So if you're using a poor quality sample, you're going to generally get potential poor quality results. And that is a concept everyone in the lab is familiar with. Garbage in, garbage out. The lab community is acutely aware of the issues that pre-analytical errors or poor samples can cause. So there might be a conflict inherent in these products between making the samples easy for the public to provide themselves and actually getting a good quality sample to test from. Another major concern from Brittany's perspective is privacy. Because when you're handing over your genetic information to a company, you're trusting them with a lot. If you look at enough points in your genome, no matter how much you de-identify it, you're still going to be able to identify it as you. Let me share an interesting case in point. In April 2018, Joseph James D'Angelo, a 72-year-old former police officer, was arrested and charged with being the Golden State Killer. More than three decades after his trail went cold, one of California's most prolific serial killers and rapists was finally caught by using DNA from online ancestry sites. Investigators compared the DNA collected from a crime scene of the Golden State Killer to online genetic profiles and found a match. That match was a relative of the man police have identified as Joseph James D'Angelo, who was later arrested at his suburban Sacramento home. It's kind of a fascinating story, and one that would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. But with many people using these products, and blood relatives of people using these products, law enforcement now has a pretty handy tool if they can manage to access it. Even if this patient was de-identified, they'd still be able to link it somehow, because you look at enough markers, you say, okay, we're looking at a male, he is Caucasian, he cannot be any taller than this, he has blue eyes, he has blonde hair, um, he has this specific blood type, um, or like this slew of information. And eventually once you have enough information, you can start narrowing it down. Most direct-to-consumer genetics companies have pretty robust privacy policies and do not release individual information without explicit consent. A look at 23andMe's 2019 transparency report does indicate that under certain circumstances, personal information may be subject to disclosure, pursuant to a judicial or government subpoena, warrant, or order. Further in the report, 23andMe shares that they have received five requests, but have not produced any data pursuant to those requests. But if you aren't planning on committing a major crime, law enforcement's access to this treasure trove of data shouldn't keep you up at night. But what about your insurance company's access? Remember, one of the reasons Mike was concerned about opening his results is that he was told his insurance might be affected. Luckily in Canada, we have some protection from this. The Genetic Discrimination Act, which became law on May 4, 2017, 
makes it a criminal offense to enter into any kind of contract that requires a person to disclose the result of a genetic test. However, the Quebec government is challenging the constitutionality of the act, arguing that by making it illegal to deny a service based on someone's genetic test results, the act infringes on the regulation of the insurance industry, which is a provincial jurisdiction. In an interview with CBC, Yvonne Bombard, a genomics and policy researcher at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, explained that the issues go far beyond insurance and that it would be a mistake to overturn the act. In her words, quote, It's important because it's about ensuring Canadians have access to the best possible health care and can make the best possible health care decisions for themselves without being fearful of having their genetic test results used against them, end quote. Bombard's research has uncovered cases where people experience genetic profiling, including denial of insurance required to get a small business loan, being passed over for a promotion at work, not being approved to be an adoptive parent, and problems in court affecting custody and access of their children. Those are some pretty scary implications. On the other side of the debate, Stephen Frank, president and CEO of the Canadian Life and Health Insurance Association, feels insurance companies need access to that information. In the same CBC article, he argued, quote, What we don't want to have happen is that an individual gets a test result and then orders a very large insurance policy. If we don't understand the risk, we can't price it accordingly. End quote. For now, the act is in place to protect Canadians. But whether it stays there or not, well, we'll have to wait and see. While the likelihood of there being any clinical utility for me is relatively low, uh, I could gain some personal utility from taking the test. So maybe I just think it's really cool. Maybe I find out some interesting factoids about myself. Maybe it's just a fun exercise and makes for amazing dinner party conversation. Uh, So while there is no clinical utility to it, I may derive some personal value from taking the test and looking at the results. I don't know how many dinner parties you're planning to go to, nor do I know what type of parties Mike thinks he's going to where people might be interested in his genetic test results. But the point is, if this is something you find fun and fascinating, then go ahead and take the test. Just know that the likelihood of there being any clinical utility to that test is minimal. But we're still left with Mike and his unopened results. So, did he open that email? Drumroll, please. At the end of the day, I decided to open the results. I don't know why. I was curious. Curiosity eventually got the best of him. But what did he find in those results? There wasn't anything earth-shattering in my results. So I did look at the Alzheimer's disease. I do not carry the variant associated with that. I opted not to look at the Parkinson's disease uh, test results because I didn't think I could do anything with it if I looked. And so I opted not to look. I also received a litany of test results on various genetic traits, some of which were pretty obvious, like I have blue eyes. I could kind of tell that by looking in the mirror. Uh, Others were news to me, so apparently there's a reason I don't like cilantro. There were traits associated with things like hair curl, whether you have an alcohol flush reaction, the type of earwax you have. So all these things that I didn't even know there were genetic tests for, 
apparently there are. So that was informative. The other thing that I discovered, and this is pretty surprising to you, I'm sure. Turns out I'm short. So some interesting nuggets there, but really nothing that fascinating. That's really a loss for dinner parties everywhere. I asked Mike if he would recommend taking the test to others. As someone who's taken the test now, I would say I, I agree with the advice that I received from the Gen X counselor I spoke with. There is probably not a likelihood of you finding anything that is clinically relevant to you. Um, because in, unless you don't know your family history very well. So if you come from an adopted family or um, your family situation is such that you don't know your, your cultural and family heritage, maybe you might find something in there that you're unaware of. But if you know your family history, um, I don't think you're probably going to find something that is earth-shattering to you and will change, fundamentally change the way you manage your own healthcare. But if it's interesting, like I, I did find it an interesting test to take. So then it's like buying any product. Are you going to get you know, $200 worth of personal value out of making this purchase or not? And so for me, meh, I don't think so. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to someone. So our mystery is solved. Mike opened his results and is still able to sleep at night. But we have uncovered some concerning things about these tests. And remember, some people are turning to these tests because access to genetic testing through traditional channels isn't as good as we'd all like it to be. So how do we fix that? I'll let Alexis have the last word on this topic, and I'll leave you with her thoughts on how to improve the system. I, it's complicated. <laughs> um, you know, the easy answer is, well, we need more genetics clinics. We need more geneticists. We need more genetic counselors. Um, there are very few training programs in Canada for both geneticists and genetic counselors. I think on the geneticist side, to a certain extent, there is a somewhat low interest in that um, aspect of medicine. So more people, I think, want to be surgeons than they want to be geneticists. Um, on the genetic counselor side, I think there actually is a lot of interest in the profession, but there's very limited training options. So in Canada, um, we currently have four training programs. Up until last year, we only had three for a very long time. And each of those training programs trains between three and I think the biggest is six people per year. So, I mean, we're graduating less than 20 genetic counselors in Canada each year. And not all of those genetic counselors are entering clinical practice in Canada. Many of them are working in the States or working in industry or working in non-clinical roles. So we do need more personnel. Um, I think we also need more awareness and understanding of genetics. We need more education of family physicians to ask the right questions. They're really, in a sense, the gatekeepers. They have to find the people with that family history of breast cancer or Down syndrome or muscular dystrophy or early onset Alzheimer's. They have to ask the right questions so that their patients are identified and appropriate referrals are made. The Objective Lens is the official podcast of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science and is produced by Michael Grant and myself, Kathy Bowers. Writing by Michael Grant, Kate Hendricks, Natalia Harhai, and Kathy Bowers. Administrative support by Redmilla Minor. Technical support by Kartik Desai. If you like this or any of our other episodes, please rate them and like our podcast. We appreciate your support. 
Also, click on the subscribe button so you'll automatically be notified of our new releases. If you're a medical laboratory professional, you can take a short quiz after each episode. Upon completion, you'll receive a certificate that verifies professional development hours. Access the quizzes at podcast.csmls.org. While on the website, you'll find other great materials for each episode, like links to relevant articles. Have something to say? Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook using the handle at CSMLS. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.